our world like this. In a world that is simultaneously so scary and so seductive. In a culture that is at the same time so dangerous and so dazzling, so alluring and so aggressive. How was the church in first century Asia Minor able to survive under the rule of the Roman Empire with its seductive promises of peace and prosperity? On the one hand, peace and prosperity to all who would participate in its life, including its oppressive economic life, including its worship of many false gods, even bowing to the emperor as God, including its aggressive military expansionist policies, and its scary, aggressive persecution of anyone who would uh, be a threat to peace and harmony, including Christians. That is the twin threat that the world poses and has always posed to Christian believers in the first century and in the 21st century. It is at the same time charming and cruel, hostile and home. How can God's people in Syria or Iraq survive and continue following Jesus faithfully when Christians are frequently attacked and abducted, even killed? By, by extremists. How can Christians in Wellington survive? When on the one hand, the call to come and worship at the feet of the gods of wealth and possessions and leisure and pleasure and sex and fulfilment and power and ambition, they tempt us so powerfully, don't they? And yet at the same time, it, it, it stands with its threats of media shaming for those who trust the Bible perhaps increasingly marginalisation from public discourse for those who do not start with atheistic assumptions. Perhaps on the horizon, lawsuits and litigation for those who do not toe the line on questions of, of marriage and human sexuality. At the same time, brutal and beckoning, intimidating but irresistible. How can God's church survive? What do God's people need to survive in an environment like this? What do we need to survive in an environment like ours? Well, what God thinks we need and what God gives us in the book of Revelation is a vision of the glory of the risen Lord Jesus. I'll say that again. A vision of the glory of the risen Lord Jesus. The prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, the Lord's Prayer, starts with three requests to our Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the book of Revelation is a, a vision, a picture of what it looks like when those prayers are finally answered. When the name of Jesus is hallowed and honoured by every creature. When the kingdom of the Lord Jesus comes. And when the rule and will of King Jesus is done on earth as it is in heaven. It's a vision of the glory of the risen Lord Jesus to sustain you under fire and to keep you serving him faithfully under pressure. But first, let, let me tell you a few things about the book of Revelation. Lots of people feel a bit intimidated by this part of the Bible. 
And so it, it tends to be one that we don't read all that often and we don't preach on all that often. Or if we do, we just go to certain favorite passages like chapters 2 and, two and 3 or, or the vision of the new creation at the end, which feel a bit more straightforward. We're a bit scared, I think, that if we go here, we might get lost and not be able to understand it. Or, or worse, we might come out the other side a little bit crazy or something, you know, trying to predict the date of the end of the world. Whenever we come to any part of the Bible, the first question we need to ask is, what are we dealing with here? What kind of writing is this? What, what genre, to use the technical term, of literature is it? When, when we open up Luke's Gospel, we, we recognise it as a, as a historical narrative. It's explaining events that, that happened about Jesus. When we come to Romans, we see straight away it, it's a letter. And so we already know a fair bit about what to expect. Psalms, poetry, right? Revelation is different. Revelation's a letter. It's from the Apostle John to his friends in the seven churches in Asia Minor. That's Turkey, what we know as Turkey. And, and if you flick over into chapters 2 and 3, you'll see there that each of these seven churches gets its own little mention and a little, a little letter within it. But the style in which this letter is written is very interesting. Have a look at verse 1, the very start. The revelation from Jesus Christ. Now that word revelation is, is the Greek word apocalypse. Apocalypse. It means to unveil something, to make something known and visible. This is going to be a great revealing of the way things really are. The idea of an apocalypse is that it gives us a new vision, a new way of seeing. It shows us the way things look from heaven, what the world looks like from God's point of view. That is the way things really are. And when the Bible does this, does this in a few places, including Daniel, as we read, it sometimes uses a style of writing that we call apocalyptic literature, which uses vivid pictures to represent things in the world in order to show them, show us what they look like from God's point of view. It has lots of symbols and sounds and numbers and colours and beasts and some of them are easy to understand, some of them are more difficult. Now let, let me try and illustrate this and if you were here on last Wednesday night, You'll have, you'll have seen this before. Let me try and illustrate this by showing you a poster. Check out that poster. The style of this poster is a little bit like the style of apocalyptic literature. It's got vivid images and they're all really symbolic. It's got a ferocious looking beast and he's got a club and there's a woman on his shoulder and we need to decode some of these symbols, some of these images to get the message of this poster. But as soon as I, I tell you that the helmet that the beast is wearing is a World War I-style German army helmet, the message is, is crystal clear, isn't it? This, this poster is actually on display up at the Great War Exhibit, just up on the hill there. It, it's wartime propaganda from World War I. It's giving us the view from the White House. It's saying, the enemy, they're, they're coming and they're terrible, so enlist in the army. That's the message of this poster, isn't it? And it's a little bit similar with the book of Revelation. We need to be able to decode enough of the symbols to understand what it's talking about. And we've already seen a few already. Have a look in verse 12. We find seven golden lampstands. Now we're told at the end of verse 20 that these lampstands are seven churches. 
So that, that one's easy, right? Whenever we see a lampstand in the book of Revelation, that, that's a church. And when you think about it, that kind of makes sense, right? Churches exist to shine the light of the gospel into the world. Jesus said people shouldn't, put, don't be like a lamp that you put under a bowl, be like a lamp on a stand. So lampstand is a church. And there are seven of these lampstands here in Revelation. That's significant. Revelation has lots of sevens. There are seven bowls, there are seven trumpets, there are seven angels, there's seven scrolls. Seven in Revelation seems to uh, represent the idea of completeness, the complete number of something. So when you put that together, the idea here, I think, is that this is not just a message for these particular seven churches back then, but it's a message for the whole church, uh, for, for Jesus' whole church. It includes us today. So we have, we, have to enough, we have to understand enough of the symbols to get the message, but it's pretty easy to get carried away trying to find the significance of every little detail, and that can get a bit speculative. And the danger is that we miss the point. Because the point of it being in this apocalyptic style, the reason why it's so visual and graphic is that we would be profoundly affected by it. It is so striking that we would be struck by it, impacted by it, moved by it, have our vision changed by it. And if we read through Revelation together over the next term and are unaffected, unmoved, if we get hung up on the details and do not experience some awe and wonder at this vision of the glory of the the risen Jesus, then we haven't treated this part of the Bible as we should. Well, in the time we've got left, let, let me point out a few things that John wants us to see about Jesus from chapter 1. Look at verse 7. He says, look, he is coming with the clouds. And then look at verse 13. Among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. A son of man. Were you listening carefully uh, to our first Bible, our second Bible reading that Sarja read from Daniel chapter 7? Who was it that comes on the clouds, comes before God and is given all authority and dominion and everlasting power? It was one like a son of man, wasn't it? Even more than that, that, that little detail here about Jesus' hair being white like wool, that's exactly how God was described in Daniel's vision. See, John is picking up Daniel's promise from the Old Testament and saying that Jesus is that, that one, that one with all authority. And the description of him here fits that. It is a picture of strength and power and majesty. His eyes are blazing like fire. His voice is powerful like the sound of a rushing waterfall. A couple of years ago, I was up at, up at Taupo. We went and visited Hooker Falls. Have you, have you seen Hooker Falls? Apparently, 200,000 litres of water a second uh, go through Hooker Falls. I remember that sound. That is, that is the sound of Jesus' voice in this vision, a rushing waterfall. His words coming out of his mouth are like a sharp sword. And then to, to top it off, get this, look at verse 17. He placed his hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I'm the first and the last, Jesus says. That is, I rule history. 
I stand at the beginning of history, kicking the whole thing off, and I am the goal of history towards which everything is heading. Now, let me show you something very, very interesting. There are three, three phrases in the book of Revelation just like that one, I am the first and the last. Have a quick look back at verse 8. Now, you tell me, who is it that says, I am the Alpha and the Omega? That is the first and the last letters of the, the Greek alphabet. Who is and who was and who is to come. Who, who said that? It was, it was God, right? Oh, the answer's up there. So in, in, chapter, one verse, in chapter 1 verse 8, thanks Murray. <laughs> in chapter 1 verse 8, God says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. And then in verse 17, Jesus says, I'm the first and the last. We get to the end of Revelation. God says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And then right at the end, Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Now, there are lots of parts of the Bible that dare to identify Jesus directly with God himself, but it would be hard to find any that do it that overtly, I reckon. This, this is a glorious picture of Jesus in all his authority, all his divinity. This Jesus is awesome. The sight of this Jesus causes John to involuntarily fall to the ground and fear for his life. This is no tame Jesus. This is no safe Jesus. This Jesus puts the lie to all those weak, wussy pictures of Jesus that we are sometimes asked to believe in. This Jesus is not your buddy. He's not your boyfriend. A little while ago, we were on holidays and I read the line, the witch in the wardrobe to, to Ella. And uh, I, I've got such great memories of my mum reading this to me when I was a kid. And I, I'd been waiting for this moment for a long time. And uh, if, if you know the story, it's about these four kids who find themselves in another world, in, in Narnia, which is under the power of the evil white witch. And the way Lewis tells the story, there's this incredi- incredible building expectation as we hear more and more about this Aslan, who is on his way to rescue Narnia from the clutches of the White Witch. And the four kids are talking about Aslan with the beavers, and there's this moment of alarm for Lucy, the youngest uh, girl, when she learns that Aslan is in fact a lion. But is he safe, she asks. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king. When you're up against the white witch, you don't want someone safe. You want someone who can do something. You want someone fierce, but good. And friends, isn't this just the vision of Jesus we need to cling to as we struggle to live for him in a world that can be scary and dangerous and intimidating. Isn't this the vision of Jesus that our brothers and sisters in Syria need when the world they live in is brutal and aggressive towards them? He is bigger. He is stronger. This Jesus unmasks the powers and rulers of this world for what they are, doesn't he? They might parade around like they are very important and powerful, They might try to flex their muscles to prove it. But it is Jesus, not any Caesar, not any president or prime minister, 
or corporate power or media magnate who rules the world. They aren't the ones ultimately in control. Next to this Jesus, the emperor really has no clothes. Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. The second thing to notice about this vision of Jesus is that he is the one who died for us. Look at verse 18. I am the living one. I was dead and now, look, I'm alive forever and ever and I hold the keys of death and Hades. The glorious risen Lord Jesus still bears the scars in his hands from those nails and in his side from that spear. His path to glory went via the cross. I was dead, Jesus says. And now look, I'm alive forever and ever. And that makes him the living one. The one and only one who has entered death and emerged victorious on the other side. That makes him the one, the, the only one, who can, is able to release you and I from death and give us the life that is truly life. I hold the keys, he says. And isn't that what we need to see Isn't that the vision and perspective we need when the world seems so seductive and enticing? All those dazzling things that the world holds out to us and says, here, this is what you need to really live, to really be alive. Whether whether it's the allure of finding our significance and identity in position or prestige, in, in being respected and having influence whether it's the temptation to find our significance or security in a relationship or in having a certain kind of family or in the success of our children. There's that constant seductive message we get told every day in a thousand ways that it is money that will make us happy. It is money that will secure our future. If only we had a bit more money, then, then we'd be okay. Or the feeling that we're not really living unless we're experiencing all the good things pleasure leisure travel food and drink top of the line stuff in our lovely houses friends life does not consist in these things it is jesus who is the living one it is jesus who has passed through death into the life that is truly life it is jesus who holds the keys and can give you that same life eternal life well finally have a look at verses 12 and 13 I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me and when I turned I saw seven golden lampstands and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man he is among the lampstands the lampstands are churches see jesus is is among his church jesus is with his people jesus is with us does it sometimes feel a bit to you like we're alone to fend for ourselves in this scary seductive charming but cruel intimidating but irresistible world not so when the veil is lifted the view from heaven is that jesus is right there with his people right here this jesus is with us 
This Jesus who has all power and dominion and authority, who's the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, who is God himself, this Jesus is right here with us among his lampstands. And so in verse 17 he says, don't, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. He can say that precisely because he is the unsafe, awesome, glorious Jesus. And because he's, he's with us, he's on our side. See, we don't need Jesus to be our buddy. We need him to be this Jesus in all his brilliant, blazing, rushing glory and yet be, be with us, before us. He's with us in his genuine humanity. He's the son of man. He's fully human, genuinely human. He knows what it's like. He's been there. He gets what we go through. He knows what it means to be tempted. He knows what it means to suffer. He's with us through his lived experience. And he's with us by his spirit, who he has sent to dwell in his people, joining us to him and doing his work in our lives. He is with us. This Jesus who has died and risen, who holds the keys to death and Hades, who is alive forever and ever, is right here with us. And so we can say, if this Jesus is for us, then who can be against us? I'm going to pray and then we'll sing. Heavenly Father, we pray that we would learn to see Jesus as he is in all his glory. We pray that this vision of Jesus would reside deep in our hearts and be our defence against temptation, be our defence in the face of opposition, be what we need to remain faithful, your faithful servants as we live in this world. Amen.